Welcome to Hobbit Hoopla. Hoopla! Hoopla! The unofficial podcast of Second Breakfast. My name is Jamie Clare, and I'm here with my best buds to talk about episode four of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, The Great Way. As always, I'm joined with our resident lore master, Andrew Smith. Andy Smith here, connoisseur of many nerdy things, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, and getting ready for the Andor series to come up here. You can find me at Darth A. Smithius on Twitter. Can't wait. Season two of Hobbit Hoopla might be talking about Andor. Who knows? But in the meantime, we have our fantasy expert, Chris Pio. Hey guys, Chris back here for another episode. Also excited for that Andor series, but today the focus is on this episode four. Really excited to be here. You can find me at Apple Pio on Instagram, at Apple underscore underscore Pio on Twitter. Still working that one out with the legal team. But thanks for listening, and we're glad you're here. And this week we are joined by a dwarven miner who was recently rescued from the mine collapse, Jake Laxer. Jake Laxer here, lover of all things TVs and movies, um, ready to get this show on the road. Just came back from Ultra Japan. It was wild. It was a time. Incredible episode this week, guys. Four episodes into the show now. My opinion, this is the best one so far. Let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into it. I, I wish I had your hopeless optimism where every new episode is the best one yet. Oh, it's just so sweet. Chris, let's be honest here. Yeah. Every episode has been better than the last. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the second episode if you're going by Chris's ranking. That's true. But if you go by Chris's ranking, every episode this season has failed, so we can't trust him because the show's amazing. And Chris is just a negative little Nancy. Oh, that's okay, oh, Chris. No negativity here. A negative a Numenorian. A negative Numenorian. No, no ne- negativity out of me. I-, I did really enjoy this episode as a whole. As far as first thoughts go, again, stunning visuals, which never cease to impress. The sound design of this episode, yeah. something we'll get into a couple of times different later. I'm sure Andrew, as another sound connoisseur, is probably salivating to talk about that as well. But just all around a great episode. It really felt, again, like I mentioned at the outro of last podcast episode, they're balancing stories so very well. And you could tell that they're putting the same amount of effort into everyone, at least so far. So even though we have rises and falls, ebbs and flows, we are seeing these storylines develop. And this was just another great episode. Keep pushing things forward. I agree, Chris. Honestly, one of the coming into the season, once again, we've talked about how a lot of money is being spent on this series, but it's all about the writing and the writing is hitting in a lot of different ways. Definitely. So I'm excited to talk about each of the different storylines. One we lacked was the Harfoot storyline. True. It always makes me a little sad when we don't get enough Harfoot coverage. Yeah, so <laughs> we missed out on the Harfoots this week, which means everybody gets a little reprieve from our speculation about who the stranger is for one episode at least. And we'll be back <laughs> next week, I imagine, with some new crazy theories about who the stranger might be but we did learn a little bit more about one of these other mysterious characters in this episode we left off last episode meeting the blurred out face of adar the leader of this orc tribe we get to see this seemingly elvish person who is leading these orcs and he's not just some evil force that we've seen as sauron before but whoever he is he seems to have emotions and cares deeply for these orcs as if they're his own kin so that was interesting to see that initial scene where we see him kneeling over a dying orc with tears in his eyes as the orcs show their love and respect for him and he shows emotions towards these orcs it was very surprising right do we think that this is Sauron or do we think that this is not Sauron? Let's start there. 
Well, I can tell you we do not think this is Gilgalad. <laughs> we don't true. think this is Gilgalad. We can put that theory uh, to bed. Yeah, we can lay that one to rest. That's fine. I accept that that didn't pan out. But I will say you're onto something. It it did appear to be an elf, and I, I think now we are safe to say that this was an elf, Adar being an elf. Right. I was going to say, Chris and Jamie, I think they're right, Jake. I do think this is... A, a different villain that's going to take us through this season one and a great introduction that is a little bit different than the all-out Dark Lord Sauron, right? He does have emotions and seeing the orcs in this way, there's almost a humanity to them that we haven't seen in any of the Lord of the Rings films to this point. Yeah, actually, that's a little note, in fact, that I wrote down was humane characteristic of orcs. And then we have Adar killing the orc to free them of pain. So... Yeah, that was kind of a nice change to sort of see what we are now being brought to the table in terms of what they can take and do with the dark element of Middle-earth here. Right. I think what we're being led to believe, or at least the fact that I'm, I'm taking from this, is that these orcs are a different type of orc. Yes, they're not Urukai. We know that. That's a truly different type of orc. But we've never seen this humanity like you mentioned uh, Andrew, or, or the respect that you mentioned, Jake. I have one note here. I do watch with subtitles. I'm not a big subtitles guy as a whole, but when we're taking notes, I want to make sure I get the details right. One stage direction, not a verbal quote, but there's a part where it says, orcs grunt respectfully. And I did see that. I don't think... That, I don't hey, that think gives that context. <laughs> that, that gives it context. It does, yeah. I, and you know, at first, to talk on the <laughs> very first Adar scene, that was very respectful. Oh, oh yeah, too. it's it's when they're parting the way. Yeah, they're. I'm gonna they're start grunting respectfully after your comments throughout the <laughs> remainder of our Hobbit Hoopla series. Um, I'm just Scooby Doo right. now. Oh man. Yeah, that was a little Scooby Dooish. Um, but no, it it does. It's a new tone for these orcs. They call him, you know, Father Adar, and and we we know that there's definitely, like you said, a kinship to this. So. Uh, there's just a, a different vibe from the orcs. Still evil, I think. Obviously, searching for the hilt, where we find out later in the episode that is their main objective. But it is a more humanitarian evil, if, if you could. Uh, maybe a, I don't know, chaotic neutral, something along that alignment chart there. Sure. I mean, one thing that I thought is, as they're mourning their comrade here, they're kind of a tribe that's devoted to each other. They have, like, specific rituals. So in black speech, they they start chanting nam Nampak Uglisha, mm -hmm. and that in black speech means to mourn their fallen comrade, which is just, mm. once again, not something we've seen. In the past, you see Urukai killing goblins, some of the orcs trying to kill each other as well or beating up on each other, but this is Meat's a back different. on the menu, boys. <laughs> and, and feasting on one another. Yeah. You're not going to see that from these orcs, at least not yet. Yeah, they'll just be feasting on humans. That's fine. That's fine. But yeah, I thought they did, uh, on a different sort of note with Adar, makeup and effects did a really good job with Absolutely. Uh, sort of bringing him into the frame. But I got to admit, I can't help but see Will Turner's father, Bill Turner, from Pirates of the Caribbean, when I look exactly at this character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, kind of with the fading face. It, it looks very reminiscent to me, but I still enjoyed it. It was kind of I nice. thought he kind of looked like evil Skrillex, but I might be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Just comes out to the heaviest trap music. That would be a nice shift from the beautiful Numenorian tracks we had <laughs> to just go straight into Skrillex anytime Adar's on screen. Yeah, I mean, I see why the orcs call him father. <laughs> I 
by all means. I want Valinori and dubstep. That sounds great. Yeah, throw down a sweet set. <laughs> Anyhow. Anyhow. Um, so we do learn that Adar has, in some way, following his mentor, the goal of whoever his mentor is, which is possibly Sauron. If we're going along the lines of Adar is not Sauron, then he's probably a follower of Sauron, like an admiral in Sauron's army. Or if Adar is Sauron, then his mentor, leader, person would be Morgoth. But we find out that Adar is wanting to continue the task that his mentor had begun and has aspirations of starting the world anew and becoming a god himself. And the first step is to... Well, at least not yet. At least not yet. First step is he has to take over the Southlands. He sends Arandir on a mission to go warn everybody who's taken shelter in the tower that they have to either abandon their claims to the lands in the Southlands or swear their fealty to Adar and join his evil army. It's kind of his conversation with Arondir was pretty interesting because it gives background to both of their characters where Arondir mentions he's from Beleriand, which is a land from the first age that was destroyed. And then they talk about how they both knew about the opening of, I think, a river. So they're clearly from the same type of elven culture. You could almost envision Adar as kind of a proper high elf that then somehow got corrupted and then has gone down this dark mm. path. He kind of looks like a Celebrimbor type character to me, even. All right, here it is. It's no longer Gilgalad. It's Lord Celebrimbor. <laughs> okay. Confirmed. Oh, my. You are the owner of their most outlandish theories. Hey, they call me outlandish theory fact checker, Jake. Hey. Now, Joseph Bali does an excellent job as Adar in this few scenes that he's had so far. Really impressed with that. I I'm curious to hear from you guys. Do we think that Adar is going to be a prolonged villain? Maybe all seasons encompassing? Or is this kind of a season one appetizer? I think this spans across at least two or three seasons. From my perspective, I think they really do need the first season villain that is maybe taken down. You know, as you've talked about in the past, Chris, you don't really want to introduce Sauron this early when there's a five season story arc. And we know the ending to the last right. season of, is him being taken down. So I do think this is our season one, but I could be wrong there. Yeah. Jamie, how about you? I don't know if it's going to be one season. It seems kind of short for it to just be a one season bad guy being introduced halfway through the season, pretty much. If they're going to defeat him at the end of this season, he's only around for five episodes. Seems a, a little bit light for a major bad guy. Though maybe we'll get him for like two seasons or, or maybe longer if he does turn out to be Sauron. Who knows? <laughs> well, we do find out from... Oh, yeah. <laughs> all roads lead to Rome. Everyone <laughs> is Sauron, <Yeah>. probably. <laughs> everyone is Sauron. <laughs> we do learn from one of the men in the camp seeking shelter in the watchtower the one who previously owned the hilt and was hiding it in his barn Valdreg. he yes. knows that Sauron's arrival is imminent and he says something about this starfall yeah. from a few weeks back signaled his return mm -hmm. so I know we said we're not going to talk about the stranger but that comment leans towards the idea of the stranger being Sauron the Starfall signaling his return. It does add additional evidence. Yeah. How I almost took that was the Starfall. So say this is a wizard and maybe the Valar sending a wizard to Middle Earth to save the land. Ooh. Maybe the thought was the Starfall has happened and things are starting to escalate. We've been moved out of our homeland. We know that our 
orcs are starting to take over the Southlands. Maybe it's just more of an omen. That's at least what I took it as. That could be. Yeah, I like that idea. So if a starfall is to occur, that means shit's getting real, meaning Sauron is on his way back. So another thing that we'll have to to continue (laughs) to question forever, but we do know that the orcs are searching for the hilt of this sword. They almost find it. When Theo goes back to town to find some food, we get a a classic hide from the orcs scene as Theo jumps in a well and runs around. And then who was going to save him if not a Rondir? Very true. You know, that's the second time we've had a close-up shot of that well. I do think, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I do think there is something a little bit more significant that maybe we get into a little bit later with that at some point in the season. I don't know. I feel like that specific location, having had two close-up shots, now with a Rondir and Bronwyn there, and with Theo having jumped into the well itself, I feel like that location may have some particular significance that we may get into later in the season. I think that's important to note, but I I think it also already does. It's kind of the epicenter of where maybe the evil was first noticed or at least started to spread. Again, it goes back to how big are these tunnels? How expansive is this operation already? And we see that the orcs, you know, in the couple of shots we see from the environment of that older village that's since abandoned where they go to the tavern, it looks like the 10 plagues have been sent through this land already. We see, obviously, desecration in the original trilogy wherever the orcs and Urukai and and Sauron's armies go, but this is quick. I mean, what what foul evil is truly spreading here and for how long? So maybe Jake will see. I, I think it's, you know, just something we're going to leave in the dust personally, but could definitely be right that it's something that could be more significant. Maybe it's the starting place of everything, that most powerful yeah. epicenter, a focal point. One question that I had, and I want your input here, how long do you think it's been since the humans have left the town and then made their way into the watchtower? Has it been a few days? Because you look as they're coming back in, there's goats and animals that are just slaughtered around the area. Things have been scavenged. Is this a few days later? Is this a few hours later? I think it's probably even longer than that. I think they've probably been in the watchtower for a week, two weeks, maybe. Yeah, I was led to believe weeks. Because they've already got to the point where they've like run out of food multiple times and keep trying to get more food and it's just not working. So who knows? Too long. I agree with that. I'm going to say maybe two weeks, two weeks or more, something like that. And in the end, it's relevant only because of the famine that they're going through, which of course pushes Theo's story forward. But yeah, two weeks, maybe a little more sounds right about me. The part that you can play with is the fact that we don't know how long the elves, Arendir, and, and of our late elf friends that were enslaved, how long they were digging. So that's the only other from that storyline time frame that we have to compare it to. So who knows how long they were enslaved and, and who knows how much of that tunnel they dug. And from another timeline perspective, how long can a human teenage boy float in a well without getting frostbite? <laughs> That is a great question. Are you saying that he may be not human? (laughs) He must be an orc. I didn't have, I did not have that theory, but he is now a half elf. That is the new theory. Thank you, Chris, for leading me. Quarter elf. We've decided he's a quarter elf because Bronwyn is the half elf. elf. So Theo's a quarter elf. We've already discussed this. Go back, re-listen to episode one of the podcast if you want to learn about all these wonderful (laughs) theories. But we do get another fight scene with Arondir. We get to see a little bit more of his aptitude as a warrior when he comes in 
with the bow and arrow this time, taking out dozens and dozens of these orcs. Get one of those sweet arrow catching moves where he snags the arrow an inch away from Theo's back, whips it into the bow and snipes an orc with it. Oh my gosh. I had a a comparison here. Arendir is just so cool. And obviously we're getting shades of Legolas here, but I've had a comparison I wrote down. If there's any gamers out there within fighting games, Legolas is kind of like Super Smash Brothers. It's a little more whimsical, a little more folly, but then you have Arundir who's playing Street Fighter out here <laughs> or Tekken or who knows what, something a lot more mature because some of the things he's doing- A little bit doing, more grounded, like, I'd say. Yeah, certainly. It just yeah. goes more into that rander aspect that we've been talking about, how this world in the TV show is just a little more gruesome than maybe the original trilogy is. But yeah, great scene, very cool. He's obviously got hero caliber stuff in him and I'm excited to see where he takes this new trouble that they have with the message that gets brought back. Right. And this scene also where they're running through the forest away from the orcs, it reminded me a lot of Fellowship of the Ring, where we were running from the orcs in the forest outside of Parth Galen. Yeah, absolutely. Where actually Boromir dies. Was, again, you know, tie him back to taking the blueprint of the OT. Here we are again doing something that's very successful and creates this beautiful Lord of the Rings imagery that we absolutely love. You know, one kind of thing that came to mind is when he makes that cool move to catch the arrow and turn around and and shoot another one back. That scene was actually in one of the early trailers and there was a big uprising from the fans. But when you see it in context of what we've seen from Arondir and the actual scene itself, it almost feels earned. Yeah, absolutely. Even though it, it is a miraculous movement to catch that arrow, it seems like something a Rondier would be able to do and do effectively. Mm-hmm. And one other thing, I'm going to point to the music in this scene. Excellent musical piece. And this is one of the rare times actually in this show where we see an ethereal dreamy score with the elves. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time it's not as elated as it is in this scene. And I really do think the elves in this show are a little bit darker than what we've seen in the past or I guess in the future. <laughs> but that being said, I think, you know, Arondir may be along alongside Galadriel, one of the few remaining elves, at least that we've been introduced to in this show, that are of higher caliber. I'm glad you brought up that singing because, and we'll get to talking about the dwarf storyline, but that transition where we see the sun come through the clouds and then we hear that singing, but it actually ends up being Disa resonating in the minds later. Such a cool transition. Great decision. Mm -hmm. And and some of these, I think transition is the word that we've used maybe most in the podcast. It's just the map transitions, which we did not see this episode. I was a little upset not to get any map transitions, Uh, but still the way that they're transferring these scenes. And again, handling all these different storylines, balancing all these spitting plates. It's just so seamless. I'm just loving being back in this world. It's just great. Yeah, it really is great. And talking about seamless transitions, let's go to Casa Doom real quick. And (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Andy. I have one more point. Beautiful. I just have like two things I want to talk about. And, Sure. So the first being <laughs> the the continuous shot of Theo evading the orcs. Yeah. Seeing that was a one take. One one take that's moving with the character as he's going through the grassy fields and and around some of the huts. I love those types of takes. It's reminiscent of some Daredevil takes we've seen in the past. Dark Knight did a few one takes, and when they're shot well, it gives you that kind of realism that you're wanting from the show, and it's what kept that next scene then grounded chris as well absolutely yeah 
That's a great way to put it, Andrew. Well said. And then one other thing about after Bronwyn and uh, first of all, I thought Bronwyn was going to get shot by an arrow for a moment. But when they get out of the forest and all the orcs stay back because the sunlight comes down, it kind of makes you rethink how dangerous the Urukai from Fellowship of the Ring were as they're able to just charge at their enemies, not mattering that the sunlight is out. They could take over the whole land, but this breed of orc, they're very very limited. So what they're going to do in the Southlands to help them maybe potentially black out the sun or whatever they did in Mordor to have that be the case. I think that's going to be a big early storyline for these orcs because eventually they're going to be roaming around, I think, in later seasons around this land. Yeah. And in the meantime, it's down to just the humans that have found shelter in the watchtower and Arondir to protect them. Well, they, I guess, will have to make the tough decision of if they're going to sacrifice their homes, their lands, and everything they've ever known, or if they will swear their fealty to Adar and join in on his evil army. And we'll just have to watch along to see what happens with that. But in the meantime, let's jump over to a couple of our favorite characters so far in this season. Two of the best relationships we have in the show so far are the friendship between Elrond and Durin, as well as the beautiful marriage between Durin and Disa. And we get some even more of that beautiful friendship and classic Disa action in episode four here when we go over to Casa Doom. Yeah, I like how we're introduced back to Casa Doom, first with the scene interacting between Disa and Elrond. Uh, Sophia Numvet, who plays Disa, does absolutely job bringing this character to life. Phenomenal. And yes, she really does. And her attempts to dissuade Elrond in terms of his pursuits of trying to monitor Durin's secretive activity is really well found. I think she she really does a great job of trying to make sure that this character looks out for not only just her husband, but also the entirety of the dwarves and how grand this discovery of this new hidden ore is inside of Khazad Doom. But it's fun to sort of see Elrond in his intellectual elven way sort of pry and trying to figure out what's going on here. But then we later see a scene of Disa discussing with Durin. I hope I convinced him with the other location. So that was kind of fun. I was going to say, I want to give a quick shout out to Gerda and Gamli, the two kids Mm, singing in the background, Rich Crone, Kiss the Stone, Polish Your Gems and Gold, that then plays into the actual opening of the door. Yeah, beautiful little background. That was beautiful fantasy. That was fantastic. I was going to actually mention that next. That leads me to a question. Why would Durin or Disa tell their children or say aloud? (laughs) (laughs) That makes absolutely zero sense to me. I'll allow it, but it... it I was very confused. And it's it's a that. very dangerous shaft. We should never let the children down there. Okay, <laughs> yeah. don't tell them the password. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because yeah. they're chanting it as Elrond's yeah. trying to figure out like what's going on. Yeah. And Disa, she realizes, like you can kind of see it on right. her face. And then she like turns around and makes up these other lies that don't get past Elrond, but they, yeah. they got me. No, that, mm-hmm. that was a little spoon fed, but it needed to be there. They bury it well, though, because right. she has a very good excuse for all the questions that he asks. So he's forced to obviously find out through other ways. Thought this was a really cool scene. 
where he's kind of playing the stealth character for a moment. He's sneaking around. Again, there's this distrust between them that's not exactly palpable. That couldn't really cut the tension with a knife, I suppose, between Elrond and Prince Durin. But definitely there's just a little bit of back and forth, especially from Durin's side. But he has to listen in on the conversation on that bridge to Dusa and Prince Durin talking. Very cool scene. I didn't expect it. I didn't think that we were going to get more progressive in this episode about what that secret was. But then when we found out that he's listening to the conversation, then goes right there. I thought that was very cool. And I'm glad we got it now that we did. Have we seen an elf like that kind of power for their race to have this kind of keen hearing sense? I can't recall too much about that. Subtly. It was always more subtle. In Two Towers, we hear the Wood Elves. We could hear the dwarf breathing from a mile away or mm. something to that yeah. effect. In episode right. one, we get Galadriel telling Elrond yeah. that he's breathing like an orc when he comes up behind yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. Right. And also in episode one, we get Elrond's elf eyes seeing Galadriel's ship go past the horizon. So they have True. these incredible elven senses. It's a good point, though. It's never this up front and center, I guess you could say. It's never that they're using it for a very specific purpose. It was always kind of an offhand thing. But this time, yeah, he's spying, which might start to grow that distrust yeah, a little he's, bit. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like a scout almost from a video game yeah. over top. He's And he's actually mm-hmm. above them. If you actually see the scene itself, he's on like a plateau above. Once again, I want a video game of going through Cause of Doom. <laughs> I've, I've noted that a few times within my notes here. Yeah, a video game would be awesome. Yeah. And then the, the very next scene we get with Elrond is when he obviously uses that secret passcode that he learned from the children, gets into the secret mine and finds Durin, who shows him the Mithril. Just like we've predicted, our yes. first theory to be proven correct on Hobbit Hoopla. Yes, we did, we did it. it. Sure. Let's a go. successful oh, theory. <laughs> so it Hoopla. wasn't it wasn't Hoopla. the Arkenstone? It was all right. So we had one false theory, one correct theory, but hey, if we guess enough times, we're bound to be correct sometimes. So it was in fact Mithril in the box at the end of episode two. And we see now that the dwarves have been continuing to mine, but King Durin wants the dwarves to be very cautious with their mining expeditions as the Mithril is very difficult to mine and doesn't doesn't want anybody to get murdered by a mountain. It's perilous to excavate, and we have nearly four dwarves die trying to extract this Yeah, ore. so we get some big conflict between Prince Durin and his father, the king, as far as Prince Durin wants the dwarves to put more efforts towards getting this mithril out of the ground, and King Durin is more concerned with keeping the safety of his kingdom and, and not getting too overzealous with the mining, which may or may not occur in the future, who's to say? I wonder if King Durin, if it's truly just about the mining aspect, or if it's about, does he know more about the land below, and does he know about the strange things deep in the world that Gandalf talks about in the original trilogy? Perhaps that's the ancestral knowledge that King Durin is referring to when he says, when a new king gets crowned, that gets passed on. Perhaps that's what he's referring to. Maybe we find that out pretty soon, when Durin gets crowned. That might be forming into a theory here. I I like both of those ideas when put next to each other. That was just a great scene. I wrote down here literally, holy acting. Peter (laughs) Mullan as as King Durin with Prince Durin. Gosh, I love that scene so much. We've skipped over a little bit of the Mithril stuff. We'll go back to it because we definitely need to. But I just got to talk about that for a second because that dynamic between them when you think that 
king could not be more angry. Oh, all dwarves are so stubborn. Oh, he's of course going to be angry. But then he turns around and shows this humanity that I didn't expect. I can't imagine mm-hmm. any of us really did. But we hadn't gotten a scene with King Durin at least... Uh, to an extent like that, especially not a one-on-one conversation. So that was just phenomenal scene. I really liked the acting there and a bit unexpected, but I'm glad that this show is keeping me on my toes. I think you could say the same thing about the acting for this entire episode. My notes was just constantly, I can't believe how good this actor is. I can't believe how good this actor is. I can't believe how good this actor is. Totally Um, agree. Incredible episode as far as acting and directing goes. And also cinematography. Beautifully shot. There were three, yeah, three specific shots that I really appreciated in Casa Doom since we're on that topic right now. One was the zoom out when Disa and Durin are talking on the bridge. When we pan Beautiful. out, then we have the close up of Elrond perceiving what he has heard. He's describing as where he needs to go, the mines of Miramar. And then following that, when Durin has Elrond swear on yeah, mm-hmm. the stone of the mountain, and he says, I need your oath, and they both put their hands there. I was like, oh my god. I love editing and film, and that was just fantastic. Like To see a visual of a bond between both dwarves and elves was dope. One other beautiful visual from the Casa Dune part of this episode, which I didn't know if they were going to come out and explicitly show it throughout the show, but the opening title sequence that we have in the Rings of Power is these sands that get moved into different designs and these beautiful intricate designs, but the way that the sands are being moved through that title sequence is through vibrations, through resonance. And then they showed explicitly Mm -hmm. when Disa was singing for the dwarves that are stuck in the mines, they showed the sand on the stone stairway begin to form into some of these designs. And I just thought that was beautiful. I I wasn't sure if they were going to come out and explicitly show the audience that the title sequence was a resonating reference, but that was very cool to see. That's a great catch. Yeah, good illusion there, Jim. The mountains hold many secrets. Yeah, before we move on from Casa Doom, I really appreciate it at the end of the Durin's conversation. I guess that's what we'll roll. The Dur-Dur combo. Yeah, the Dur-Dur combo. Durin, uh, Durin. There it is. Oh, that was nice. No, I actually really appreciated where old King Durin was like, forever I am with you, my son. Very Mustafa. I hope we don't see King Durin fall off a cliff and die. Mufasa. But, uh, <laughs> Mustafa. <laughs> More was. like you, Mustafa. Mustafa's the, uh, the bad guy from Austin Powers, so. <laughs> yeah. You're thinking of Mufasa. Oh, shit. <laughs> Oh, wait, you were talking about <laughs> Mufasa? Mufasa. Oh, oh what did I, I say? That's hilarious. Yeah, we're keeping Very that. Mufasa. <laughs> Jake, I do think, though, earlier in that episode, Elrond says, do not waste what time you have left with Durin. I, I wrote down here that is this a foreshadowing a soon death in this yeah. series? Is this yeah. maybe later down the line? Is Prince Durin going to have to take the mantle of King of the Dwarves? King Durin did seem pretty old, right? Yep. He seems very old. I think that's a, a safe foreshadow that something may happen to King Durin. Where we leave this set of storylines here is the invitation for Prince Durin to come back with Elrond to Linden. One thing we haven't talked about, I guess, is just kind of an offshoot of this storyline is the actual building is going on. Uh, The elves and dwarves working together again. It's a very quick scene, maybe, I don't know, 45 seconds, but it's an important one because this thing that we're kind of being kept in the dark about, and now that I'm saying it out loud, maybe that's why it was such a quick scene, but building has commenced. Whether the mithril is going to be involved with that or not, who knows, but dwarves and elves are working together. They are building this tower, and it's going up. 
they are going to get that spring deadline. They better. It is kind of like a marvelous <laughs> construction in the middle of a city. That was really interesting. They clearly demolished like some of the buildings like in the middle of Aragion <laughs> and just started construction. Eminent here. domain. <laughs> yeah. like, we don't need a central park in this city. There's enough greenery on the outskirts. Let's just get rid of this lovely park and turn it into a forge. There's crazy old Celebrimbor demolishing all of our, our housing here to put another pet project on. I need to make jewelry. <laughs> but last thing before we move on from the dwarves, in the conclusion of their exchange, King Durin says to Prince Durin, I want you to you know go and figure out what's going on. We finally see an agenda yeah. from the dwarves. And I gotta be honest, I feel like the show puts you in a perspective that really wants to root for the dwarves. We've sort of... I feel like Elrond, he's a fun character to watch, but I have a severe distrust for him. And I always feel like he's putting his agenda before his friendship. And I came because 20 years is too long to stay away, even for an elf. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> like, like, come on, Elrond. He had an agenda. There's a reason he's there. And it's Celebrimbor sends yeah. him there, right? To understand what are they hiding? Yeah, he's backtracking. Backtracking, of course. And so it's nice to sort of see that flip uh, and see Prince Durin now taking the reins and taking their own sort of perspective. Holy shit. Is Elrond Sauron? Oh, no. <laughs> Elrond it Sauron? Is the real Elrond captive in the Southlands and Sauron? This is actually actually Sauron. What if Adar hmm. is Elrond? They have the same hair in the Lord of the Rings version of Elrond. <laughs> Wait, has anyone considered that Sauron might be the stranger? I, I think that could be a huge possibility. I'm just saying. That's a great idea. Yeah. If you agree with that theory, I would advise you to listen to episode two of the Hobbit Hoopla <laughs> podcast. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hey, Jamie, and one quick thing. We haven't touched on this yet, but Elrond's father was mentioned multiple times in this episode. And it's kind of, there was that one interaction with him and Doran where it was a personal moment between the two. Durin is angry about his father's, you know, shutting down of the mines. But that interaction between the two, Elrond starts talking about his father and that he was ascended to forever carry the evening star across the sky, which yeah. is interesting because that's the lore within Tolkien's appendices. While it's a personal moment, it's kind of reaffirming things that we've read in some of the Tolkien books. So I thought that was a really interesting way to give an Easter egg to all the Tolkien fans. Yeah, that was very interesting. It's got a very like mythological feel to it. And it helps, I guess, bring this series more towards getting fully into the Tolkien lore as we've seen these elves as kind of normal humans, basically, that live longer. But... This is one little piece of information that helps show us that these elves are way beyond anything that man could be in this world. Uh, that was a great little, great little catch there. I'm just curious. I'm going to ask around the table here. I don't know about you guys, but I have a different viewpoint in terms of Elrond's character in this show as opposed to the OT. I feel like he's far more bold in this show that's the right word ambitious maybe i feel like there's a significant amount of overbearing confidence that elrond has and so i do feel as though when we see him in fellowship and beyond he's a far more wise elrond do you feel that there's something beyond when Isildur fails to destroy the ring is there something that humbles him i believe that it's possible that Seeing as how this relationship is sort of panning out and Durin wanting to be trustworthy of Elrond, I'm curious if Elrond becomes humbled at the cost of Durin's life. 
Now that mm. is a spicy theory. I like that a lot. I like that too, Jake. I was just thinking as you were going down the list of comparisons there, I, I don't know if I would necessarily bet Durin versus anyone else in the field right now, but I think you're right. There's an emotional attachment that we're going to see for Elrond, which turns him into that more wise, more regal, more statecraft person or elf. Oh, they're people. Hashtag too. elves are um, people too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, person, sure. It, maybe it's the birth of his daughter. Uh, maybe it is just the moment, like you said, the failure to destroy the ring. There's a big life that we know Elrond is, is going to right. have here in right. the future as an important character. But you're right. Are we going to see that turning point? That's a good thing to think on. And I wonder. You know, another thing that he's put so much into Celebrimbor and the plans that Celebrimbor has. He looks up to that character and something's going to happen there. He's going to get a little bit more... Uh, during When you see him in The Hobbit, he doesn't want the dwarves to go to the mountain. When you see him in The Fellowship of the Ring, he doesn't want the ring to stay there. He changes, and that's going to be shown, I think, through his arc in this series. Andy, I'm so glad you brought that up because we were about to glaze over it right before we move on to Numenor here and that storyline. You mentioned Calibrimbor, and again, that 45-second scene, maybe a minute long, something very important we haven't discussed is the, I guess, prophecy uh, that uh, Elrond's father gives to Celebrimbor. Yeah. Maybe prophecy is the wrong word, but more of a, uh, a guess, or I, I'm not really sure what to call it. Maybe it is prophecy, but he makes this wild guess about your future will be in my son's hands. Uh, Elrond's father says that to Calibrimbor, and where the heck did that come from? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it came from the editing team. That's where it came from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I wonder if they just threw that in there to add some importance to this relationship and some added importance to Elrond himself. I don't know, but we do have... And it does directly then link into a few scenes later when they talk about fathers. That was like, that's a big theme of this episode is the relationship mm -hmm. of a father and a son and the expectations that are there, especially for these royal families, right? Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of royal families and relationships with your father, when we jump over to Numenor in this episode, we get to learn a little bit more about the king and the queen regent of Numenor. Numenor. We have a lot to discuss that happened in this episode and the whole island nation, island kingdom of Numenor. Let's start with the right-hand man of the Queen Regent, Farazhan, and what he gets into as you see that he is this kind of man of the people type leader, and he's walking around the shops and speaking with all the shopkeepers and, and all the civilians within the town, and when people start to get riled up about the fact that there's an elf in Numenor, he calms them down while still taking their side. I thought he gave a fantastic speech about how the men of Numenor will not be frightened by a single elf on their shores. And he kind of proclaims that Numenor will forever be ruled by men. As cool and effective as that scene is, I think I'd actually rather talk about, and we'll talk about both, but the scene right before it where he does talk about uh, how wisdom is more valuable than cleverness, uh, where they're in that bustling market, and he's kind of teaching, I forget exactly the other character Kemen. in the scene, but it is. It is Kemen, the Okay, son. yes, mm -hmm. you're right, that was canon. And I think that was more valuable as a scene, because not only did he prove it in that very next scene while being so political and being so diplomatic, but uh, that's just what his character is. We've gotten hints and flashes of who these Numenorean leaders might be, but now we, we certainly see that this is the type of person that Farazhan is. He's willing to do anything for his people, even if it's talking your way out of it like a politician does. 
I mean, I kind of I kind of have him in my mind as this political mind that is playing both sides, right? He's sure. talking to the lowliest in, in the system while also speaking to the queen and giving his thoughts. And um, he is someone that I think maybe they're setting up to take control of Numenor as Muriel is gone. Um, and I'm interested to see what really happens there. One, I know we're talking about Farazhan and one key interaction that he had was with Hallbrand when Galadriel is escaping. Do you think that Hallbrand told Farazhan where Galadriel is going? Yes. Mm. He says, you could if you knew exactly where she was going. What is Farazhan's allegiance? He's That's a great of, question. He's yeah. playing both sides. Muriel yeah. is waiting. Um, and then that gives me an uncertainty about Hallbrand as well. I think his allegiance is to Numenor. I think it's more geared towards the royalty in Queen Muriel, but I think his allegiance is to Numenor. Well, you say his allegiance is to Numenor and that of the people, which is definitely true, but it makes me wonder who knows about the Palantir? Who knows about the potential prophecy that's supposed to be coming true? Does he know? And would he be only willing to bend the rules to perhaps make sure this prophecy does not come to pass? I'm going to say he does know because the expression on his face when Muriel sees the floating petals of the prophecy yeah. actually coming to fruition, I think that says it all. Well, I think he's saying multiple things at once, right? He's kind of two-faced in that way where he's telling the people one thing, he's telling Muriel another thing. He's then going along with Muriel once she makes the decision to help the elf. I think he's just trying to put the cards into place so he can be the next in line. Yeah, I think that's absolutely what he's doing. He's mm. he set himself up that at whatever opportunity he gets, he is probably going to try to put himself into that king position or to gain as much power as possible. He's already basically the second most powerful person in Numenor. But now at the end of this episode, when we find out that Muriel is leaving, that puts Farazon as the guy in charge. And so whatever his real plans are at this point, now that he does have power over the kingdom, we'll get to learn a lot more about it and see if he's going to take it in a good direction or if he's going to dive wholeheartedly into this anti-elf way of life and possibly upset the Valar. Yeah. We'll see. To change tone just a, a, a small bit, that was a great scene where he is addressing the people to bring free wine, wine around. Yeah. Just for drinks all around. That was a little weird, I thought. It didn't really serve a purpose, if I'm being honest. It, it just kind of threw me off. Uh, yeah, sure, he made a great speech, but they just have wine maidens of on course. hand ready to give it to the people. That's Aren't they supposed dope. to be working their jobs? He just gave this great <laughs> speech about how, oh, they want to they want to take our jobs. <laughs> and, and they're what? just going to get drunk before what, going to work. What manipulates fortunes? people more than just giving them free alcohol? Nothing. <laughs> you got to pacify <laughs> the nothing. angry people, tell them what they want to yeah. hear. Whether it's what he truly believes or not what he truly believes, because I honestly don't trust anything that comes out of his mouth because he just says whatever he wants in order to Agreed. get what he wants. Um, so I don't trust him. But his goal in that time was to calm down the uprising to quell the people. Quell his, the people. Yeah, exactly. His goal was to quell the people. And he absolutely succeeded in that. He knows what he's doing. There's no doubt there. I don't know if it's just the Roman style architecture and what they're wearing, but he, for some reason, gives this Caesar type vibe. He kind of does. Yeah. yeah. And to go along with his costume, I also noticed in this episode that he has like a half dozen guild crests on his shirt. So he 
And I was wondering, I is that, that something where if, like, you are just, like, a member of the royal court or whatever, you are given, like, honorary guild crests? Or I think it'd be a cooler aspect of Numenor is if he actually earned a guild crest for the blacksmiths, for the builders, for the shipwrights. And if he was actually this, like, very impressive man who was a, a guild member for six or more of these guilds and then ascended to this high-ranking position, that would make him even more of an impressive person. Whether or not he's on the good side or the bad side, he's at least good at doing what he does. Have we learned who leads the Builders Guild? I don't think we have. Um, not necessarily leads. Uh, gets not scolded necessarily, called or summoned by some higher up when she's supposed to be doing draft work, but I don't know if that's the leader. Sure. Okay. I do think it's interesting that each of the people of Numenor, they're a part of these guilds, and that's how the structuring of, of the society Unionize. Is. And then, honestly, I think, Jamie, that goes, if he has all these crests, like he's maybe leading or has the admiration of these different guilds, he could easily take power based on that. Yeah, I noticed that for the first time, Jamie. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and I hope they explain it. You know, I don't want them to sit down and explain the finer points of how to be a master of each individual guild. This isn't a video game with quest objectives and stuff, although, again, still clambering for it. But I I hope they explain it because this leads me to a bigger point. One thing that with the progression of Numenor, I hope we're not losing Numenor in the scenes and episodes to come because obviously we know that the main characters are going to go on this voyage, which we'll talk about near the end of the episode. But I hope we don't lose the culture, the the. The architecture, like you said, Andy, I noticed for the first time there was a waterway with like a taxi boat on it that you would see in in, Mm. waterways in Europe, things like that. It was just so cool. Are we done with Numenor for the season, for the the series? I sure hope not, even though some of our main protagonists are leaving. So I, I hope they explain that. I hope we get more culture and... We will eventually lose Numenor, as is shown with mirroring (laughs) scenes at the very beginning and the very end of this episode. We get the prophecy, the dream that Muriel has of the Great Wave. Title of the episode, The Premonition Premonition. of the Great Wave Coming to Destroy Numenor as the Petals of the White Tree Fall. And then we end the episode with possibly my favorite scene of the whole show so far, when they send Galadriel out. Muriel banishes Galadriel, and then the petals once again fall, and you get this look between Muriel and Elendil as they both simultaneously recognize the importance of these petals falling. And the very next scene is Muriel giving a speech to the court, and Galadriel shows up at the last second. Muriel says that she will personally be helping Galadriel make the trek to Middle-earth and bring an army of men to help protect those in the Southlands who are under siege by Sauron. And I want to point out something here real fast is, you know, this vision that the Palantir has provided to Numenor. We know that this great wave's origin starts with the falling of the petals. What we don't know is the journey and how it gets there. And so when these petals begin to fall, all Queen Muriel can do is just immediately reverse her political perspective in terms of working with the elves because this end-all, be-all for Numenor is her complete driving point, and that of her father's as well. So did you take the Great Wave as more of an omen of the downfall of Numenor, or is this actually going to be a wave that sunders the island? We know that's similar to, in the First Age, Balerion, which is another kingdom, was forced under the sea. Is that the destiny of Numenor? 
I think it could be. I like to think of it as an actual giant wave because I feel like that'd be badass. But metaphorically, I think it does make more sense of just the complete downfall of the city. Actually, I have a theory. Theory alert. We got to get a new jingle to play every time a theory shows up. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mean this jingle theory? Pause for jingle theory. Beautiful. (laughs) I think that the... Mount Doom, once it is activated, will force the environment to shift in some way that will cause a great wave to emanate from the bottom of the Sundering Sea and take Numenor. Uh, could yeah. be. That could be something. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'll get some fact check on this later, or we can just delete this part either way. But someone, I think it's Farazan, in the beginning speech, mentions that uh, the men of Numenor built the sea walls and built everything you see around you. So they mention sea walls, which kind of does make me think the great wave might be literal wave. If they've got water that's supposed to be held back, metaphor or not, I think something might be coming. I like where you're headed with this, Chris, with seawall. And I think we had too little of a shot for the significance of the worm. I would love to see the worm break the seawall. Oh my god. <laughs> the worm is coming back. That's a stretch. We thought it was just going to be a scary sea monster. <laughs> yeah, is baby. that your theory? Play the music. Yeah. <laughs> Play the music. Yeah. The worm is Sauron. The worm is Play Sauron. The music. <laughs> I can picture that now. Sauron, as the worm, comes surfing down this giant tsunami wave. <laughs> As it crashes over the city of Numenor and the worm jumps out of the wave at the last second and just devours the kingdom in one gulp. And that's how season one ends. That would be amazing. Uh, Speaking of amazing cinematic, we see Galadriel hover her hand over the Palantir. Oh man, that was so reminiscent of Saruman looking into the the eye of Sauron through the glass ball. Yeah. Again, cinematics in this episode were fantastic, absolutely on fire. The way that it shattered, the shards explode, and then you're in that vision, that was just such an interesting way to to depict what the Palantir is trying to tell you. So we have five more lost Palantirs, because we end up, they mentioned there's six remaining. There's seven seeing stones total. Correct. And there's six remaining, but we know one we see in the future with fellowship and you know two towers or the king the movies the, mo- the, the movie <laughs> crystal <laughs> ball in movie uh, <laughs> we see it in the wizard of boss <laughs> but actually we have five more remaining and so i'm curious to see where these turn up because we've got to at least see one more and in fact is that how a dar becomes a dar I what does know. that mean? Do you mean like know. collecting the dragon balls will give him the most power? <laughs> Saruman turns evil from one of these palantirs, right? Is it possible that Adar has also come in possession of one of these seeing stones? Is it possible that that's what's driven? Okay, him? I see what you're saying. Is that the, the means through which Sauron right. corrupted Adar? Correct. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, maybe. I am definitely, I think you're absolutely right. We will see more of these palantirs, palantiri, as palantiri. we move on in the show. And are they going to be good? Are they going to be evil? Are they going to be controlled by Sauron? Yes, there are seven seeing stones. We did see one that Saruman was in possession of. There was one in the extended versions that Gondor had possession of. One of those two could be this Palantir. Presumably some of them were lost maybe in Beleriand. Maybe this one gets lost by the Great Wave. But Uh, in this very same scene, we do get a even more important cameo from another important item 
yeah. that will show up in the OT, the movies, as Jake would call them. We see, for a moment, Galadriel glance at Narsil, the sword that will Ooh. shatter the hand of Sauron, defeating him, and eventually be reforged for Ar- Aragorn to save the day once again. So, finally, I've been waiting for it. And for Boromir to cut his finger on. <laughs> and for Boromir to cut his <laughs> finger on. Um, I've been waiting every single episode. <laughs> I think every scene in Numenor, I've just been looking out to be like, all right, Narsil is here somewhere. Is Farzan sword it? Nope, not that one. Is the one that they gave Elendil Narsil? Nope, it's not. But I think we finally found it in the room where the Palantir was stored. I believe we see our first glimpse of Narsil. So how is Elendil going to get possession of that? I'm not sure, but it's there. It's in the city. It's in the tower. Or it's just a sword that looks very similar to the sword that we all know. Why would they do that? Because there's no way that they would ever mass produce the same type of hilt, right? Yeah, come on, Jamie. Kit Kats all look the same. You think that someone from this high-level blacksmithing (laughs) guild is going to make multiple swords that are the same? No, they're artists. They're artisan crafters of sword and steel. They're making unique weapons every single time. If there are multiple swords that look like Narsil, I'll just be sad. Okay. That would be so disappointing to have the exact same sword (laughs) and just be like, oh, no, this is just a sword. It looks kind of the same. Sorry. Just teasing us along. We're officially on Narsil watch. We already, we succeeded. We did it. We found it. We don't know this. <laughs> we do. That no, would be we can't crazy. Confirm. We cannot well, confirm. That would be we cannot crazy for them to true. show that sword that looks identical and just be like, nah, it's a different one. That's insane. I agree. Okay, it, does, it doesn't look identical. I agree. It just it doesn't mean that we can't still be on Narsil Watch. I mean, is that all you want out of it? Just to see it off in the, on the, the rafters? Yeah, I'm done. I'm not going to watch the show anymore. <laughs> <laughs> all right, podcast is over. Thanks for tuning Thanks for in, tuning everybody. Thanks y'all. <laughs> We did it. We found Narsil. I love fan service. There's no way that that's not Narsil. <laughs> Actually, I was going to say it is a bit like off colored from what we know in the original trilogy, but let's let's not go into that. Like we'll be on Narsil watch for the for the remainder. The color fades over well, the next 3000 years. They polish it before the war. <laughs> it's only yeah. been 2000 years. Oh, sorry. Then never yeah. mind. <laughs> All right. I guess we got to bring in the theory jingle again because this is now just a theory that we saw Narsil and It wasn't actually the sword, but if it is, Elendil will eventually come into possession of this sword, possibly as he joins up in the army that Muriel is getting together to bring to Middle-earth. Yeah, they, um, when the announcement's going off, I noticed this small detail. I'm not sure if this was just a, uh, just a small decision I didn't think much about. He, Farazan mentions that it's uh, a queen's protection guard or, or, or uses kind of like a, a word that would make me seem it's a small unit, uh, more like a secret service type to FBI or something like that. But so many people are raising their hands and saying, oh, yeah, I'll do this. I will volunteer. Uh, got definitely, a, I volunteer as tribute, tribute vibes. Yeah, there you go, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also kind of got, uh, you know, Misa vibes from Daenerys, you know, back in the early seasons of Game of Thrones. So it, it seems like they're, even for an elf, getting people to rally behind Farazon. And, you know, it, he is the one to say, okay, I can play both sides of this, and I'm going to take you guys with me based on what I say up here. Danny Miso vibes are, are far more uh, relatable in this scene than Jar Jar Miso vibes. <laughs> <laughs> That's, oh, That's true. Why does Rings of Power not have 
a Jar Jar like <laughs> character. We're only four episodes in. We'll get there. We'll get as soon as Numenor gets Lord. crushed. What's going to happen is Numenor is going to get crushed by the big wave. It's going to sink to the bottom of the ocean where we go to that underwater Jar Jar Binks oh, city. Good city. And then we just do a quick little detour into episode one of Star Wars. And then we jump into episode six of the Rings of Power. Pierce did bring up a good point, though. It, it did bring up a good, like, you know, enlistment sort of scene uh, that that's bringing everyone together for this great war that is ahead. And I, I am excited to sort of see now the people and the elves, the men of Numenor, the women of Numenor, the people of Numenor bonding together with the elves to sort of see what will now have to fight that's developing in middle earth the alliance of elves and men is at its beginning point here and we see that isildur and his two buddies from the sea guard i believe it's called his two buddies from yeah. the sea guard who have been kicked out of the sea guard thanks to isildur we were thinking previously that his desire was to go east we thought that he was he wanted to go to middle earth um, but we find out in this episode that he was actually being called west right. and he wanted to go to valinor at the end of this episode, he changes his mind and decides to join up on this expedition crew in Middle-earth. So he's now going to hop on a ship and head towards Middle-earth with all his buddies. So we, we talked about Isildur getting his friends, Valendil and Untamo, kicked out of the Sea Guard. In that next scene where Valendil and Isildur get in a bit of a fight, we learn two really key things. First of all, Valendil brings up his brother. He says, uh, you're spewing that garbage, your brother's yeah. garbage again. You want to go to the, the West, the real Numenor? That's another thing where we, we keep hearing about this brother brought up uh, multiple times. Another thing is he brings up, you're always brooding over your dead mother. Uh, yes. Yeah. yes, I noticed this too. It was the first time we hear of Isildur's mother. So we're, we're slowly getting more introductions to Isildur's backstory. Um, and I think in the next few episodes, we'll probably learn more about the brother specifically. Uh, and maybe even be introduced to said brother. Yeah, let's talk about that hell of a right hook that Isildur had on uh, Velindil. <laughs> My god, what a jab. To make a much broader point as we start to wrap things up here, there is fandom... There is love built into this series, but more than anything, I think production-wise, they're knocking it out of the park so far. Oh, without a doubt. All of these storylines are just juiced with content that I actually want to listen to. Mm -hmm. I actually want to find the details of and keep up with uh, this uh, set designs and everything. We could go on for, for so long about music and all the accompaniments, but at the core of it is, I think, a good show with great acting and awesome writing so far. If there's any part of this series that I'm not that enthused about, I think Iarian and Kevin's storyline, it's just, it's new. Um, and I'm thinking they're, they're definitely like creating the groundwork of this romantic relationship. Uh, but that's the one that I think is maybe slowing down some of the, the scenes. I think it's going to be a bit of a slow burn, but I think it's also going to tie in a lot to Farazan's plans. As our first introduction to Kemen is when Farazan is advising him that wisdom is more important than cleverness. And then we see his interactions with Aarian. He's just trying to be as clever as possible the whole time. Very clever. He has these like quick one-liners. Aarian's like, I don't make a habit of being around strange young men. And Kemen says, well, if I see any, you'll be the uh, first yeah. to know. So we see that Kemen is 
has not yet taken into advisement his father's ideas on wisdom over cleverness, but I'm also interested to see how everything goes. If that Farazan is going to go in kind of the negative direction, especially towards elves, I think that he and Kemen are both going to work as factors leading Iarian towards the path of evil, which was my prediction from last episode, that Iarian will go on to build some important building for Sauron in the future. And I think this relationship with Kemen and Farazan will begin her path towards the dark side. And will Kemen's uh, cleverness eventually undermine Farazan's wisdom? Ooh, it might. I do think, you know, we've been introduced to Dar and we've talked about that being one of the villains of the series. I think Farazan would be a very compelling mid-season or mid-season in terms of the second or third season villain, you know, we have to overcome, and maybe he's the downfall of New Ah, like the call came from inside the house? I can definitely see it moving in that direction. Okay. When he begins to get more powerful in Numenor, then he will lead to its downfall. But incredible episode. You guys know how I feel about it. My favorite episode of the season so far. (laughs) Everybody's given some final thoughts real quick, so let's jump in to our rating of the episode. Chris, I'm going to start with you this week because you've given failing grades pretty much every episode so far. And I know that there's no way you're going to give this episode a failing grade. So don't let me down, but what are you going to rate this episode on a scale of 111 hoopla? I just don't get why you think I would think any of these episodes are failures. They're not. Because you gave them like a 60% grade. If, you're, <laughs> if you want grade. to use that scale then let's just rate it out of 100. But we're not. This is more of a connotative thing. You're choosing 111 as an official number. Why play with numbers so much? Just let me be, and let me tell you, this episode was excellent. Uh, I still think the previous episode was better, so I'm going to drop this one down oh. just up to two points from an 85 to an 83. Still, it's an excellent episode. Uh, again, balancing storylines are just really seamless right now the writing team is is really creating things that i care about i love it all right so your opinions are positive your grades are negative (laughs) that's fine andy what did you think i did think the pacing of this episode worked really well that it was our longest episode by far of the series and and no point of it did i think that those storylines were dragging as always the scenes were beautifully shot i want to shout out to the composer bear mccreary the music in this episode was wonderful, especially that outro. I could put that song on repeat, honestly. Yeah. Um, overall, you know, uh, I think this is my favorite episode so far, and I am going on percentage based here. So I am giving this an 100 out of 111 hooplas, which is a 90%. <laughs> a 90%. Good rating, yeah. That is That's very pretty nice. good. That is a pretty dang good score. Let's see if Jake can beat it. What did you think, Jake? I'm going to stay consistent with my rating with last episode. I'll give this a 95. It's a good thing we didn't see Galadriel smiling on a horse. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. You know, in terms of production, this this show has been exceeding expectations beyond belief. I'm, I'm just absolutely blown away with what they've done. It's it's setting a challenging precedent, I think, going forward, just being able to establish what they've done so far. Can they keep it up? I think they they can definitely keep this up. I, I definitely really do think they can do that, and we're set up for something in terms of greatness. Speaking of setup, 
Um, I felt that this was a, you know, just pushing the storyline forward, adding in some additional details, um, which is why I didn't jump it up any higher. I still thought it was a great episode. I just think we're furthering the plotline a little bit more and getting some little bit of development of story. I was very content with it, but I think we can do more to give it a little bit of a higher rating, but very content with 95 out of 111 hoopla. You're just mad. You're mad that they didn't show your feet in this episode (laughs) as the didn't get that check. (laughs) And and we got a lot of close-up shots of Duran's nose. Where was I? (laughs) So Jake is still getting a few royalty checks in there from the dwarven scenes. But no Harfoot, that's fine. (laughs) Next episode is probably going to be some heavy Harfoot. Can't wait to see that. Royalty deposits of Mithril. I loved this episode. My favorite of the season so far. I got to continue my streak of giving it the highest grade of the podcast. So I'm going to give it a 102 out of 111. Fantastic episode. I loved everything that happened in Numenor. The book ending of this episode of the vision with the petals falling to literal petals falling at the yeah. end as Galadriel was almost sent away and Queen Muriel changing her mind. Can't wait for episode five and beyond. Maybe we can have a new segment for this. This is not necessarily a theory, but we were talking earlier in this podcast episode itself about father relationships and i started to think in my head there are really six that are going on right now nori's father is hurt and that's a very key element of the migration queen mariel uh, queen regent mariel's father is the true king and obviously sick and and need of assistance durin's father's relationship which is just a great relationship but still important elrond's father and the prophecy with calabrimbor isildur has his own daddy issues and Theo doesn't have a father, or maybe does have a father, but father and the patriarchy are a huge, hmm. huge concept. And Adar is literally father. And Ad, ah, that's another great element. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. So, nice. Seven father storylines going on here. Seven fathers, seven palantirs. <laughs> oh my God. Seven rings of the dwarves. We should rename the show The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of the oh Daddies. My God. I'm just, I have the, the Charlie from Always Sunny meme in my head right now. Just how do we connect these number seven? Everyone in the show has a father. Can you believe it? <laughs> Boom. Um, yeah, that is very, I mean, it's obviously a very important story. Trope. Trope. Yes, that's the word for all these storylines. Overall, great episode. Thank you all for joining me once again for this Hobbit Hoopla podcast. Woo-hoo. Before we finish up, though, we do have our favorite segment. That Chris always brings to us every week. What do you have for us this week in your segment, Chris? There's some good news in this world, Mr. Frodo. And what I'll I'll talk about today comes from the animation world. Uh, The Studio Ghibli Park in Japan is going to be opening rather soon. Tickets were just bought, went on sale, and were nabbed up quick. So don't make any travel plans for now. But new photos were released. I, for one, am a huge Studio Ghibli fan. All of those animations are just uh, special places in my heart, and following the studio's work as a whole has just been a great journey for me. Uh, So as a nerd, I wanted to share with you Mm -hmm. all that soon I hope to visit Jake over there in Japan. Maybe we can head on to Studio Ghibli land together. How about that? Come on down. Spirit yourself away on over here, and we'll head to Studio (laughs) Ghibli land. Oh, you're always good for a pun, buddy. Thanks. Hey, I'm here. I'm here. (laughs) thank you as always chris and now as we come to the close of the episode it is time for the moment of highest hoopla what do you have for us this week andy 
as Galadriel said, I beg of you, Muriel, choose not the path of fear, but that of faith. Stand with me. Let Numenor fight alongside the elves once more. Nice. Theory jingle. Do 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 do.